All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here today. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors at, uh, at Hiawatha. Thanks for uh, attending, especially if it's your first Sunday. As uh, Leah said, we're glad you guys are, are joining today. Um, we are in a series right now in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, so again, if you're just joining, that's where we've been now for uh, about four weeks or so, and we'll be there through uh, mid-March is our plan right now, uh, give or take a few weeks. And so um, looking forward to our journey through this. Hope it's been fun for you so far and, and learnful. Uh, but today we'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 12 to 17. If you have a Bible or phone app and want to turn there, please feel free to do that. Uh, this will be on screen here, though, in just, uh, just a second as well. I'm going to start by reading the passage today, and then I'll give some context to it. So if you're just joining in, hang in there for a second. And uh, this might seem a little bit out of place and kind of random, but um, I'll give some context to it in just a minute. Uh, but at least understand and remember that this is a letter about theology, It's a letter about Jesus, written to the loved but dysfunctional church in Corinth. Also think modern-day Greece, just to kind of get your geographical bearings uh, there as well. Modern-day Greece, or in the region of Achaia, uh, to quote from verse 1 a few weeks ago. Uh, The the loved but dysfunctional church in Corinth by the Apostle Paul in in mid-first century A.D. So just a a short 20 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead. And it's a book, uh, again, about... Christ, theology, but very circumstantial things as well that pertain to Paul's life and his love for this church. This is a church he planted, and he's been there a couple of times. He's corresponding with this church through a variety of letters. Uh, There are two we have in the Bible. I'll mention this a little more about this in just a second after we read it, but this is the second uh, kind of biblical letter than we have that he wrote uh, wrote to them uh, to instruct them and encourage them and and other things as well. So let's read, though, from uh, verse 12 and following, and then we'll come back and, and talk about this. Verse 12. Paul speaking, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. All right, so a little bit of context here. The, the timeline of First and Second Corinthians is actually quite confusing. Uh, Spencer did a great job last week explaining it. I'm not going to go into all of that again today. I'm not going to repeat all that today. But just remember, this is a real church uh, planted by a real guy named Paul who really lived, uh, who was a a Jewish man who was saved by Jesus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9, but who was just uh, knocked on his back quite literally and saved and uh, and changed. And he planted churches all around the region, and this is one of them. And now he's writing back to them, which this is actually his fourth letter that he wrote to them uh, that we call 2 Corinthians because two of the letters were, were lost. But in today's passage, you saw him mention Macedonia and Troas. So now he's speaking a bit more in the present tense. In other words, this is where he went instead of visiting them. So if you remember that piece from a couple of weeks ago, he was going to visit. He said, uh, he, he asked the question, do I make plans according to the flesh? Meaning God had other plans for him, and so he didn't go. But that was hard for, for both of them, for Paul and the Corinthians. But he, he addresses that. But this is where he went instead. He kept going on to Macedonia and Troas And uh, Titus is mentioned here because he was the one who delivered the third letter to them. This is Paul's so-called letter of tears that came up last week as well. 
And so what he's saying here is that when he didn't find Titus, he became more anxious over the welfare of Titus and the state of the Corinthian church. Because Titus was kind of the go-between between Paul and this church. When he didn't find them, he had no update. He had no, like, how did they respond to my letter? And how are they doing? And are they still, are they thriving? Are they floundering? Did they respond well to what I had to say to my corrective letter uh, or not? And so, and he's concerned about Titus as well, just because he thought he was going to be there. And we know this is a part of Paul's suffering for the churches. He, he acknowledges this later in the letter. He says, I'm anxious for the churches. I've been, I've been stoned and shipwrecked and things like that as well. But what really, the, the suffering I really face is my, my daily anxiety over the, the state of the churches that I love. And he's gonna, again, he'll mention that later in the book as well. But, but all of this together, his weaknesses, his changed plans, his, anxi- his ministry depression, his anxiety, it continues to serve as a context for him to preach the gospel to them, uh, to kind of use his experiences and use his emotions and use what God is doing in his life and kind of not doing as well in one sense. He has a lot of weaknesses. He owns that. He actually boasts in his weaknesses. That's come up already in this book, and it will again and again and again before we're done. Uh, but it serves as this context for him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the strong gospel of grace uh, given to weak sinners like us. And so uh, today we're going to look at this theme of the triumphal procession of Jesus Christ as we just read a little bit about from verses 12 uh, to, to 17. So again, keep that in front of you if, if you will um, for, for our time. We're going to start by looking at lessons from Paul, uh, his life plans and ministry anxiety, I'll call this. Uh, there's more than that, but uh, the two big things I think we see con- uh, continually here throughout the letter is his altered plans, how he didn't go to see them, and trying to address that and uh, talk about his love for them and how he wants to see them, but then his ministry anxiety as well uh, kind of woven in and, in and through that. So, so basically what he says here in verses 12 and 13 to summarize and put it in, in different words is he went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, which is the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. And he says even though a door was opened for him, that, that just means clear opportunities arose to preach the gospel, to evangelize, there was God-given receptivity to the gospel. It was evident. And so a door was opened, not by him, so it was opened for him, right? So the implication is God opened a door. He made it possible for people to hear that Jesus was alive and that he was the Son of God and that he rose again in victory, that he died for their sins, that there was, there was hope above all hopes for them. A door was opened for that. But he says, even though that was the case, he had anxiety. He was still anxious over the well-being of Titus. He was still concerned for the Corinthian church. That juxtaposition is really important here. So a couple of things going off this, and we'll start with the life plans piece. I think first what we see clearly here is that God had better plans for Paul and, by extension, the Corinthians than they did. God had better plans for Paul than he did. This is why he changed his course. The straight-up reality is some people would not have heard the gospel in Troas if Paul had his way. If Paul went to Corinth instead, the gospel would not have gotten to Troas in, in, in the way that God wanted to through Paul. It's just a straight-up truth. It's a good lesson for us, too, in how we think about our, our own lives, whether it's our ministries or just the circumstances of our life, and how, how we are to also see God's kind of quiet but ever-guiding hand in it. This passage reminded me of James 4, where there James says to the church, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. All right, do you see how this relates? This is like uh, certainly in the subtext of what Paul is saying and I think especially experiencing that he has this humility. And going back to chapter 1 again, when he said, do I make plans according to the flesh? Like, do I, make, do, I, do I organize and plan my life out according to me and what I think ultimately? And the, and the Christian answer to that is kind of a both and. It's like, yes, we make decisions, but as the Proverbs say, the Lord directs our steps. And sometimes he has better plans for us, of course, than we, than we would originally think. And sometimes we don't even think. We don't even know what he's doing until we might uh, look back and see his fingerprints over our decisions. But what James is saying here is this is how Christians should think. This is how Christians should talk. The point here is not to say that we literally need to add this qualifier to the way we talk 100% of the time. You know, like we can't, like we, like we can't say to someone, like another Christian, oh, Eric, we're going to get lunch tomorrow, right? I can't wait. And Eric's going to call me out and say, but you didn't say if the Lord wills it, Chris, and like rebuke me. That's not the point. But this is more of a hard issue now, I think it should shape the way that we talk. Sometimes this probably will come out in the way that we talk. We will add that qualifier. Uh, but a lot of times it's more of a heart issue. So when we're speaking, what are we thinking? Or in the grand scheme of things, when we plan our lives, when we talk about our lives five years from now, when we talk about our lives 20 years from now, are, are we adding that in, right, uh, to the way that we pray and the way that we discuss and ask for advice maybe or wisdom or things like that from other Christians or things like that? But that aside, here's the greater question, though. Why is this a distinctly Christian way to think? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this a distinctly Christian way to talk? And the answer is because it reflects the humility in the notion that God is the orchestrator of not just our lives, but our salvation, too. It is to put ourselves in the back seat again and again and again. So it becomes clear to us and others that God saves us, we don't. James 4 is essentially saying, let the lesser notions of how God commands our destiny circumstantially in the day-to-day inform the greater notion of how God commands our destiny salvifically, or as it pertains to our salvation. The Bible is saying, do not separate these two things as if they operate by different rules, because To think that we control our lives in the day-to-day circumstantially is to risk thinking that we control our salvation, which would then lead us to make us more rely on us and ourselves and our works and our plans and our wisdom and our strength rather than Jesus' grace. And this is, again, precisely the core message of the gospel, but also I think the core message so far in 2 Corinthians. And, And Paul has been saying this, but also living this out. His message has been, God wills that you be saved. God came to you to save you. And he's demonstrating that with his very life. When he says, do I make plans according to the flesh? God directed my steps to Troas, just like he directed my steps to him. And, And so is the case for all of us in this very room. God wills that we be saved. He desires that we know him. He wants to come to us, and that will come up a little later on, too, we look at some of Paul's words here, so I'll, I'll stop there. That's the first piece, though, uh, to see this lesson from Paul in his life plans and, and how that's kind of married to James 4 and how that speaks to our lives as well. The, the second part has more to do with his ministry anxiety. So again, the second part is 
Paul is yet again unafraid to highlight his weaknesses. He used the phrase, remember, I, I boast in my weaknesses, in other of his letters as well. Something he's uh, bragging, maybe too negative of a, of a term in English, but he's boasting or kind of putting out there his weaknesses and saying, this is a good thing for you, church, good thing for me, good thing for all of us, that I'm not Superman. Uh, if it was, it could send the wrong message about the very core of the gospel itself. But look at the words here, even though. Easy to read over. But Paul says, even though a door was opened, even though God was doing miraculous things around and through me, I was anxious. Even though God opened a door and was moving mightily, I had ministry depression. I was anxious over the state of Titus. I missed him. I was shocked he wasn't there. I was worried for him. And through him, I was worried about you all, the the Corinthian church. And I think that is just such a great, and great might not be the best word. By great, I mean like accurate. It it is a great, accurate picture of the Christian life. Uh, God using you, but maybe you're too anxious to notice sometimes. Or God's miraculous work juxtaposed to our depression, sadness, suffering, or maybe restlessness. This is, and this is true, I think, for all Christians, but to go back to Paul, especially as he calls himself an apostle here and elsewhere in his letters, uh, obviously addresses the church that way, all, those, all the churches. He's an apostle, a leader. I think this is especially true in, in leadership, that, that the idea that true Christian leadership is going to come with suffering. I don't mean that like formally necessarily, like uh, just for pastors, though that's a big part. I mean for anybody who is a person of influence in a church and that leads people and is kind of responsible for them. Uh, in a way that could be very casual and informal as well. But the, the, truth is, the truth remains. True Christian leadership comes with suffering. It comes with anxiety over the people you're leading because you love them and you want the best for them and you know that you'll be called to account one day for their care. To take it even further, leadership comes with a constant reminder that everything good you see happening in your church is not from you which is a a really humbling thing. It's from God. It's a very humbling thing. And yet, leaders sometimes get to walk through, to use Paul's words, the open door first sometimes. We we sometimes get the front row seat. But again, it means it will be given over to suffering for the sake of the church. And it doesn't mean that, that we'll just suffer like in a sickness kind of way, though I think that's part of it sometimes. But it might just mean that we sleep less because we're praying more. It might mean that we say no to more things that would otherwise give us pleasure because we're visiting people more. Or uh, it might mean that we have anxiety over making the right decisions for the church because we know, again, that one day we'll be held to account, as the Bible says, for those that we care. Our ministry will be tested. Like, will it, will it, be, will it, will it last through the fire or, or not? To quote from 1 Corinthians uh, 3. So I, I think that leadership then is this, like, and Paul is showing this, this terrible but beautiful privilege. And, and I'm not trying to deter you guys from leadership. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, pursue it. Some of you probably should uh, and, or you will someday. Uh, but, but also, to encourage you, don't let your weaknesses be a deterrent to leadership or your fear. Uh, those can actually be very good things because our weakness, and Paul is such an example of this, our, our weaknesses uh, can demonstrate the cruciform weakness of Christ, which is the center of, of our faith, because it was through his weakness and death 
that we're saved from our sins. And so we should expect, like Paul, Paul does, to use cruciform leaders, to use weak leaders who depend on God so they, they live and act and lead by grace, but also they are, they are demonstrations of the weakness of Christ shown on the cross. It's going to be a big part of uh, the sermon a little bit later on here this morning as well, and again, the book. But I think this is so much the case that those who are strong and self-confident, or maybe I'll just say too self-confident and unafraid, maybe should not be leaders in the church. Uh, I've seen this by experience as well. Uh, it's not to say that confidence can't be a gift uh, from Christ. It certainly can and is uh, many times. But those who are strong and self-confident, unafraid, and uh, really want to lead too quickly uh, probably should not be leaders in the church. They're not going to be a cruciform, uh, cross-shaped leader uh, being strong in their physical weakness, uh, but instead trying to be strong in their strength. And, and I like how he says here in verse 16, just this simple question. It's is so Paul. But he says, who is sufficient for these things? It's kind of like he's just writing and writing and writing, kind of ruminating on his life and writing this stuff out, thinking over what's going on. Then he just kind of pauses, gives this excursus, like, who is sufficient? It's bigger than him. But who is sufficient for these things? And what's the answer to that? What's the implied answer? No one. No one's sufficient to save themselves. No one's sufficient to save others from their sins. No one can do it. The best of evangelistic uh, uh, demonstrations or speeches or sermons or acts of love. No one can do it. No one's sufficient to do it. But that's good news because it means we'll rely on God more, right? It means God is sufficient. To, to quote Jesus, it's impossible for people to be saved. It's, it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a person to be saved. But not with God. With God, that can happen. Because God can make things appear out of nothing. Just like it can make salvation appear out of the nothingness in our soul. It's void, it's empty, there's no pre-existing goodness for him to work with, but God, God can say, let there be light in our souls, and there will be. And the good news is, he wants there to be. And so he does, through, through his son. Okay, so that, uh, that starts to move me into this next section, which is to look uh, for both the whispers, then, and the shouts of the gospel in this passage. We've already been talking about it, of course, but to look a little bit more clearly at the whispers and the shouts of the gospel in Paul's message, but also his life. So the what's and the how's. The, the what's of the passage, what does he say? And then the how. How is he saying it? How is he living? What is God doing physically in his life as well? So let's move into that now. Lessons about Jesus. So the first section is lessons about Paul or from Paul. Now lessons about Jesus Christ. And we'll look at triumphal processions uh, and open doors specifically. Two themes here. Let's start with the first. Let me read verse 14 again to remind you what this says about triumphal processions. Verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. All right, so this is where it gets kind of confusing, especially as we translate this into English. Uh, it's left kind of open. A lot of English translations... Uh, translate this in kind of a neutered sense. They kind of leave the verbal idea open. And so it's kind of hard to understand what exactly he's referring to. Some of this is just cultural, like what are triumphal processions? And so it's very easy to get the wrong idea here. But let me just say it this way for clarity. Paul is not saying 
that now as Christians, we are being led in some kind of victorious military parade, as if we are the soldiers. That's not what he's saying. Easy to read it that way, but that's not what he's saying. Yes, that is a metaphor for Christians used elsewhere in the New Testament, but not here. Here, he is likening us to being the prisoners of war, paraded through the streets of the enemy city like spoils on the way to being slaughtered in the town square. The ESV leaves this open. This the ESV is what we read, what we primarily read from here at Hiawatha. This is the ESV. The ESV leads that leaves that reading open. If you if you notice, you can read it. See that too. The NIV translates this better. Uh, they say, "But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession." <clears throat> See the difference? It just heightened, it looks at that idea as that for clarity. So we get the idea. Thanks be to God who always leads us Christians. We're the prisoners, though. We're the captives being paraded through the enemy city on our way to the gallows or to to be slaughtered in the town square in Christ's triumphal procession. Here's what they kind of miss, though, the NIV. They make Christ at the head of the parade. But that's not what it says. It says God's at the head. God the Father's at the head of the parade. And Christ also is suffering with us or through us or in us or as we suffer we share in Christ's sufferings as if Christ then himself is in the prisoner parade as well as we sort of relive out his uh, procession unto uh, Calvary and death himself. This reminded me of uh, Zedekiah at the end of the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. Uh, We see a few of these in the book of 2 Kings. You guys might be aware of this but uh, this one is most pronounced. Reminded me of Zedekiah, one of the kings of Judah as Jerusalem is in the process of being destroyed by the Babylonians, it says, it says this, They captured Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and brought him up to the king of Babylon as they passed sentence on him. They put out his eyes and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Okay, this is precisely what 2 Corinthians is, is imaging. And these things happen. Christ then being the ultimate Zedekiah, the one who fulfilled uh, the stories that came before him. I mean, one way to look at it is, is to say it this way. Processions happen to the kings of old, so speaking of the kings of the Old Testament too, and the reason that's happened, the reason it's written down this way, is in part to serve as prophecies of the ultimate king of Judah, speaking of Jesus, who would not deserve this punishment, but who would take it on for us. All the curses of separation from God paraded before the Jews and the Roman soldiers on that first Good Friday 2,000 years ago, bound up like Zedekiah, sentenced like Zedekiah, uh, but ultimately crucified for our sins. So to go back to 2 Corinthians then, the, the fragrance of Christ's idea is the fragrance of his crucifixion in us. The fragrance or aroma of Christ is the aroma of his death and crucifixion being lived out in us. In fact, when you look at the idea of fragrance and aroma in the Bible, it refers to sacrificial language. And so even just that, that word alone gets at this idea that the aroma of Christ is the aroma of his sacrificial death, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of, of the world. But the idea for Paul and for us is this is happening for us in Christ. And Christ is in us. Christ isn't still suffering, of course. He's raised and ascended, but the story of his crucifixion is being lived out or dramatized yet again 
as we live our lives out now in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the story of Christ that goes before us. Christ is being led to the slaughter in the parade of spoils spiritually through Paul. And you could add us into that as well as Christians, but especially here through, through Paul. As if, again, it's being put on display. As if, if, as if he's the spectacle or play script of, of salvation uh, being lived out for the Corinthians and others. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9 actually says this a bit more clearly, so I'll read this here. It's the same idea, same church, same author, same idea, same theology. But look what he says here. Paul says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, same idea, right? At the end of the procession, the parade, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. Do you see what he's saying? He's not the soldiers in the victory parade. He's in the, he's in the procession, but he, he's like those condemned to die in the arena, like the spoils of war would have been paraded through Rome, contextually speaking, in the first century and around those times. All right? This is kind of complicated, but it's very important to understand because it's major 2 Corinthians theology here, and just Corinthians theology, 1 Corinthians 2, but major 2 Corinthians theology here to understand. This is what I mean. Paul's cruciform sufferings, or sufferings shaped by the cross then, accompany and remain consistent with his cross-centered preaching. This is another way for him to boast in his weaknesses again, right? Because of how it creates space for the word of the cross, or to go back to verse 12, the, the quote, gospel of Christ to continue to go forth into this church and beyond. Christ's shameful, horrific death must be, and just is for Paul, but must be for us at the center of our theology. And sometimes it will not just be in our words and in our sermons and in our songs, but it will be put on display through our sufferings, through persecutions we face, through our weaknesses, through our mistakes, or even just spiritual simplicity in our lives. And what he says here about the evangelistic side of this in terms of like people watching the spectacle of Jesus' death being played out in our lives is for some people that will be a sweet thing, and for some people that will be a, a stench They will plug their noses and run the other way. And so for some people, it will be sweet and refreshing and novel to think about how God lowered himself to the point of death for them on a cross, how it's by grace they're saved, not by their works. It'll be a sweet smell, the sweet smell of Christ's death because it will show them the love of God for them. And they'll be attracted to it. They'll smell it. They'll walk towards the cross. They'll believe they'll become Christians. They'll grow in the church. They'll be saved forever. It'll be sweet in that sense. But in another sense, for other types of people, it will be, as Paul says, the aroma of death unto death. The, the, the stench of, for them, the stench of Christ's death will not lead to salvation, but it will be an offense. This is, this is like people in Jesus' ministry. When, when Jesus talked about his death, even his disciples, when he started bringing up that he must die in the worst way possible. It has to happen or there's no hope. People ran the other way. Or when he talked about his body as bread and his blood as wine, how we had to eat his body and drink his blood to be saved from John 6, people ran the other way. It was a stench of death unto death. 
They loved Jesus for like the physical miracles he was doing. More bread and fish. More healings from leprosy. We love this guy. Let's make him king. When he talked about what it meant that he was king, how he was going to be king, how he was going to fight, what battles, what was our biggest problem in life? It was not physical but spiritual. And how he had to be put to shame on the cross. People, some people ran the other way. And others, again, it was the sweet aroma of, of salvation. And what Paul is saying is, it will be the same for us. Not in the exact same way, obviously, but as we, in our weakness, bring the gospel to others, as we suffer but still have faith, as we have a simple spirituality, not full of asceticism or religion, but simplicity, as we, have, as we make mistakes, as we're persecuted maybe in words or even physically, that will give off the aroma of Christ's sacrifice for our sins in the context of us more clearly speaking it and preaching it. Paul, again, to say this a little bit differently, um, off of verse, uh, I forget what verse it is, 16 maybe, Paul says, I'm not a peddler of God's word. So Paul's not a peddler. He's not selling salvation or selling the gospel as he reclines on his yacht, purchased off the proceeds of his big tent revivals. Right? He's not that kind of apostle. There were other apostles that day who acted like that, but he's not. I mean, his, his very name means small. Do you guys know that? The, 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 the name Paul etymologically means small. It's the very name. And so when he moved from Saul to Paul, kind of name-wise throughout Acts and then into these letters, there's movement there. There's a humility. There's a smallness to him and a largeness to Christ that is important to see. Not just because it's about grace, but because Paul reflects the smallness that Christ became, even though he was the Son of God on the cross for, for our sins. But, but again, Paul's not a peddler of God's word. He's showing it off in weakness and love as he preaches a God who became poor and weak for us on a cross, that we, that we might become rich in his grace. That's what he's saying over and over and over again. And this is something the Corinthians either forgot or they never fully understood. They were ashamed of Paul's weaknesses. And, or maybe they had no category for their own sufferings. And we'll see this a little bit later on too. We don't know exactly what's going on in the Corinthian church on that level, but that's certainly a possibility that they didn't have a category for their own sufferings as well. Wait a minute, I'm a Christian now. Shouldn't life be great? And Paul's saying, no. Look at my life. Life got way worse after I became a Christian. Way worse Way more depression, way more suffering, way more loneliness, way more anxiety. But that happened to show off grace, that it wasn't about me. It wasn't about God rewarding me for being a good person. And more than that, it was about me being put on display, becoming a spectacle uh, for all to see Christ in my sufferings. Same principle also in verse 12, where he says, um, speaking of his ministry in, in Macedonia, he says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And again, when he says this, this is not just referring to his evangelistic efforts in Troas, um, though it is. And this is, by the way, a great way to pray. We actually pray this a lot here for our city, that God would open a door for ministry in Minneapolis because if he's not doing that, no one's going to be receptive to the gospel. We have to pray, right? 
So join us in that. If you don't do that, please join us in praying these exact words. God, open a door for ministry. Open a door for the gospel. Soften people's hearts. Uh, that there's a great example for us in that. But there's also a deeper meaning here. This, if you kind of peel back the top layer, spiritually speaking, the language here reminds us of how much a way back to God has been opened up by the blood of Jesus himself, not our works, right? It reminds me of Revelation 4.1 where it says, John looks up into heaven, he gets this vision, and he says, after this I looked and behold, there was a door, but not just a door, it was a door standing open in heaven, an open door. That's the image he got. And so open doors ultimately, biblically, reference the gospel. Notice back in verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 2, notice the tense of the verb followed by the preposition for. A door has been opened for me. Meaning what? Meaning it was, was not opened by, by Paul and his team. Meaning for us, that the door ultimately of salvation and and for ministry effectiveness, is, is not opened by us, but by another, namely Jesus Christ. And so whereas other religions might say, open the door, try harder, kick it down, as Christians we say with relief, a door has been opened for me because I could never open it myself because I am weak. Do you see the, the gospel in that? The way he talks uh, just oozes theology. The way he talks about his life circumstances reflects the gospel. It reflects the fact that the open door ultimately is Christ. It's not a door you kick down with your awesomeness. It's a door opened by the blood of Christ and we just walk through. So what I want to close with is just talking about greater than, I think, I think what, he's, what he's saying in this section, especially of 2 Corinthians, is grace as a category for life. So looking back at verse, verse 14 again, I was kind of getting to this already, but I'll just say this again. I think when we start to understand this and, and come to terms with how our lives can be symbols of the death and resurrection of Jesus, just like Paul's were, uh, and certainly to see how Paul's at least was, if not ours, or our leaders uh, in, in life, uh, in our church especially, we come to terms with how, the, how much the gospel pervades all areas of life, it starts to give us categories for different things. So categories for why life gets worse sometimes for us as Christians after we become Christians. Why does life get more difficult? Why did it clearly get more difficult for Paul? It gives us a category for why we suffer more, a category for why we sometimes lose friends when we become Christians or just for being Christians. It gives us a category for, going back to James 4, for why we should say, if God wills it, before talking about our life plans. Uh, also for why we see God use us in our weaknesses more than our strengths uh, many times in life. Or why, uh, and I'll say this as a preacher because I see this a lot, but why bad sermons save people or affect lives more than good sermons sometimes. In fact, a lot of times that, that's, that's the case. I get done preaching sometimes and I think, well, that seemed to go really well and I get nervous because I'm like, oh, shoot, you know. Uh, and that's maybe going too far with it, but that's just true. Uh, I, I, wor I worry. I, I'd rather be, as a preacher, um, weak. Not to excuse like, you know, oh, great, we'll just have my eight-year-old up here to preach, right, to show off God's grace. It's not that far either. Uh, but it is to say that our weakness, our, um, our sicknesses, our, 
stumbling and fumbling over words, our bad sermons, uh, or evangelistic appeals. Uh, sometimes God will use those to show us that it's not about us. It's about God raising the dead, to quote Paul elsewhere. Or again, our bad evangelism, uh, again, or why we can't even truly explain how and why something good happens in our lives in churches. Like, there's a lot of times you look at the history of Hiawatha, how there's no mechanical or evidential reason for why things have gone well here. Uh, it's, it's like it's not our plans, it's certainly not our strategies, it's not our ministry philosophies, though we have them and though those are gifts, we see God's fingerprints on them. It's not ultimately because of them, but it's just simply God's choice. It's God's love, it's God's power, it's God's strength through our weakness that he chooses to do good. And the reason for all of that stuff and more is grace. It's a type of grace that God wants to put be put on display as a spectacle for the world to see with their eyes as they're hearing it from our lips. There's a, a, a complementary nature between seeing physical pictures of Jesus' procession to Golgotha through Christians, and especially the better, the better part of it is hearing with their ears that Jesus loved them unto death. But a relationship between the two that Paul is saying you cannot separate them. Don't separate those two things. They go together. God cares about the spiritual and the physical, both telling the same story. And yet, with all of this said, maybe part of this isn't just to understand yourself and myself as a spectacle, but like the Corinthians, to see Paul as one. When you read 2 Corinthians, just to kind of step back, it's, it's so easy to instinctually just say, Paul is me, which isn't wrong. We've talked about that, right? But instinctually to start there, but I think that's secondary meaning rather than primary. Primary meaning is just to say Paul himself as an historical man was a spectacle, a dramatization of Jesus' death and resurrection. He, as an apostle, when he spoke words, uh, reflected Jesus's. He is a type, we say in theology, or a symbol of Christ. Because if you look at what Paul said actually about himself in 1 Corinthians 4, he said he was a spectacle to human beings and what? Angels even. So it's kind of like a heightened sense, uh, the, the way Paul talks, Bible talks, about his spectacleness uh, versus just, just anybody's. Uh, and so I think there are three levels to this, and I don't think I put this, oh, I did put this on the slide, great. I forgot, all right, this is better. So there's three levels to this. I, I think when we look at this idea of uh, being a spectacle, there's, there's the first level of seeing our individual suffering as Christians being a spectacle of the gospel to the world. Uh, there's the second layer of seeing Hiawatha's leaders suffering as a spectacle to you all to remind you of God's love when we suffer for you in different ways. Uh, that's, that's the second layer. To go back to what Paul's saying as a pastor of this church, the third layer, though, is just to look at Paul himself and say, Paul's sufferings as a spectacle and life, his whole, his whole life, as a spectacle to all people for all time and also angels. All those things relate, of course. They're all part of the point. But let's not forget the third. And when we do that, when we ask that question, we start to read some of Paul's words new here. We've been doing this in this series, but when we see that Paul, for example, says here in verse 17, we are not peddlers of salvation. The, the reason is because 
God is not a peddler of salvation. It's a free gift. It's as if Jesus himself wants us to hear him say that to us. Like in Revelation 21.6 where he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To all who thirst, I will give from the spring of the water of life, and you can't buy it. You can't bring money. And so Christ wants us to hear that. He wants us to hear him call out to us through Paul, saying there's, there's nothing I require. There's nothing I ask of you except to receive or to receive the gift. Not only that, but in verse 13, he wants to save you. When, when Paul says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. That's not just Paul's feelings about Titus and the Corinthians, but Jesus' feelings about you. His spirit was not at rest when you were separated from him, and so he came to your rescue. I mean, what if you thought about God in those terms every day, that he wanted to get to you and spent the highest cost to do it, his own blood? That he wasn't a billion miles away just disappointed in you all the time. Just kind of, oh my gosh, there they go again. Oh, like you bother him. You, God is not, through Christ, God is not bothered by you. He's not mad at you anymore. His wrath has been deterred. There's no more separation. But the, the sobering truth is we work in our brains subconsciously every day really hard to put up obstacles between us and God. And we don't have a good view of who God is. We just don't naturally. And so we need God to tell us. And one way he does this, maybe a bit surprisingly, is through the spectacle of Paul. When he says, my spirit wasn't at rest, Jesus, the deeper meaning here is Jesus saying, I'm not at rest until I get my people back, until I win them back until my body's laid at rest in the tomb on that Sabbath day after Good Friday, buried for the sins of the world, right before he rises up again to, to vindicate everything he did and to triumphantly raise himself over death for us to give us hope for eternal life. That is his posture towards you guys. If you believe the gospel, if you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me from my sins, that is God's posture towards you is, is a, a sense of, restlessness until he has you back, which he does. By faith, he does. But to see this is part of God's story as well. Separation that wasn't good, but he's the one that solved it. And he cared more about it than you and me. God loves you more than you love him. God wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. See, these truths matter. Theology matters for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our killing of our sin, for the sake of our quelling of ministry and just life depressions and anxieties and bad theologies and pictures of God. Like, where you go in your brain when you feel distant from God matters. This is why this stuff matters. Who is he to you? How is he self-disclosed? And what the Bible is saying is the triumphal procession of Jesus is partly what we should think about. His procession to Calvary, his procession to Golgotha, triumphing through his death and love for us by grace. And it's so important. This is so important right here. As strange as it may sound, God doesn't just want you to see it in the pages of the gospel accounts. He wants you to see it in your life, played out. He wants you to see it in your leaders' lives when they suffer for you, played out. And he wants you to see it in the life of Paul. 
in the letters, played out yet again as if it were on repeat after repeat after repeat after repeat, saying, this right here, wherever you're at, just isn't big enough. It's not big enough. However big it is, this isn't big enough. And so the Bible says it needs to get bigger. So your picture of God gets more big and beautiful and all-satisfying, all-encompassing, that he's the sufficient one, not you, where we can get, in our sins, low but loved, receivers, not enactors, just to receive his grace. This is, this is why this stuff is here. So let me pray for us, and we'll close with one song to respond to this uh, and continue some of these uh, themes next week. Jesus, thank you so much uh, for the triumphal procession of Christ, <clears throat> knowing that when we suffer, we share in yours, that uh, you have not uh, asked us to do something that you first haven't done for us. And in fact, even when we do it, we're not really doing the same thing. Uh, we're physically demonstrating what you did for us. And we see that in Paul. Um, God, help us as we read Second Corinthians to see his life and words as uh, just a, a whisper of yours and your love for us, uh, a picture, a glimpse, a foreshadowing, kind of a backshadowing, but a foreshadowing of the cross and, and the empty tomb. God, thank you that you didn't withhold your one and only son, but gave him up for us all uh, so that he might be paraded before men, paraded before the Jews, paraded before Roman soldiers, spit on, mocked, robed, crowned with thorns, stripped naked, put up on a cross. And that was the triumphal procession because in and through that you triumphed over our sin. You triumphed over separation between us and you. Help us to believe that, not to be ashamed of it, as Paul says, the gospel is not something he's ashamed of. Romans 1.17, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to, to all who believe. So in the same vein, let us not be ashamed of our own suffering or others' Christian sufferings, but knowing that it, that's the way God works his power. It's the way that, that he exudes grace and brings the dead out of tombs. In Christ's name we pray, amen.